The following program may contain explicit language. It's Thursday, August 27th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist and big surprise. I'm Sonari Glinton sitting in for Mike Pesca. I covered the economy and cars for NPR's business desk and Planet Money, and currently I'm hosting the podcast Bring Back Bronco. Now, as we tape this, we await the finale of this week's Republican National Convention. But instead of comparing the Republican and Democratic conventions this year, I thought we'd get into the Wayback Machine and compare this convention to ones from the past. Now, here's the thing you realize after watching RNC after RNC. It's this. Republicans give good convention, as television events, that is. There are some obvious set pieces, law and order and taxes, of course. And to those who say that law and order is the code word for racism, there and here is a reply. Our goal is justice, justice for every American. If we are to have respect for law in America, we must have laws that deserve respect. Just as we cannot have progress without order, we cannot have order without progress. And so as we commit to order tonight, let us commit to progress. And the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no. And they'll push and I'll say no. And they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips. No new taxes. Richard Milhouse Nixon and George Herbert Walker Bush, 20 years apart, absolutely nailing it. There's the American flag. Republicans seem to be preoccupied with the American flag. Now, usually during a convention, there's a pan of the audience for the lone black conventioneers. And of course, there's the vice presidential candidate slamming the head of the other ticket. I guess a small town mayor is sort of like a community organizer, except that you have actual responsibilities. But we can never let the fire go out or quit the fight because the battle is never over. Our freedom must be defended over and over again and then again. There's still a lot of brush to clear out at the ranch, fences that need repair and horses to ride. But I want you to know that if the fires ever dim, I'll leave my phone number and address behind just in case you need a foot soldier. Rhetorically speaking, you cannot get much better than Sarah Palin and Ronald Reagan. Now, this year, you can't get Ronald Reagan, who played Notre Dame quarterback George Gipp. But we got the greatest football coach in the history of Notre Dame, Lou Holtz. In addition, Lara Trump, Kimberly Guilfoyle, and, of course, Vice President Mike Pence. Too many heroes have died defending our freedom to see Americans strike each other down. We will have law and order on the streets of this country for every American of every race and creed and color. And with President Donald Trump in the White House for four more years, and with God's help, we will make America great again. Again. They want to enslave you to the weak, dependent, liberal, victim ideology to the point that you will not recognize this country or yourself. I wasn't born a Trump. I'm from the South. I was raised a Carolina girl. I went to public schools and worked my way through a state university. Mrs. B from my seventh grade English class was right. What I learned about our president 
is different than what you might have heard. They don't have pride in our country. And because they no longer ask, what can I do for my country? Only what the country should be doing for them. Someone should tell Coach Lou to look up the NBA players and what they're doing today. Anyway, what Republicans do well when they win is make us not just think of how great America has been in the past, but what it can become. Make us proud of who we are, you know, and where we're going. George Bush called it the vision thing. I've spoken of a thousand points of light of all the community organizations that are spread like stars throughout the nation doing good. We will work hand in hand, encouraging, sometimes leading, sometimes being led. That moment, that rhetorical moment, one like that, that's what we haven't seen yet. And the thing is, it's only up to the candidate to explain. Now, imagine it like a game of bingo. Can Donald Trump, after all this time, can Donald Trump finally become presidential and do the thing that presidential candidates from Richard Nixon to Mitt Romney have done? At the center of my bingo card is the Unite Us chip. Normally, Republican nominees at least try to land on that mark. Now, what's the chance of that happening tonight? Hmm. On the show today, I spiel about Los Angeles traffic and race. But first, I talk to the great Scotty Reese, the editor of A Girl's Guide to Cars. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. With millions of Americans working from home, people are rethinking their commutes. Social distancing also means that how we shop for things like cars is changing. Buying a car has always been one of the most miserable things that we could do. But according to our guest, Scotty Reese, COVID-19 is forcing the auto industry to change. She's the editor of the website, A Girl's Guide to Cars. I've known her for most of my career. Welcome to The Gist, Scotty Reese. Thank you, Sonari. It's really nice to be here. I, as you know, am a third-generation car person. I've spent my entire life somewhere adjacent to the auto industry. And I always joke that because my mom was a car person that I could track my life and the economy based on what my mom was doing. The car industry is usually really, really cyclical. So if even the economy seems to be doing fairly bad, how are jobs in the car industry doing right now? What is, what is the industry like? Well, the industry is sort of like the rest of our country, taking it moment by moment. Um, it has really high spots and it has low points. And the factories are getting back online, but supply chain is stressed. People are going back to work and sales are rising in some places, but other places sales are flat or down. It really has been a time of auto companies and the sales chain proving their mettle. If they were prepared for this and they had the backup plans, the emergency plans in place, they've done really well. If they were working day to day and not really thinking about the future, those are the companies that are suffering the most. 
Now, when you said highs and lows, let's start with the lows. What are the lows that you're seeing? Is it purely sales or is there something more existential going on? Who's, who's got a low? Getting cars to places has been a challenge. Delivery of vehicles has been a challenge. There is a low inventory, probably the lowest inventory of cars on dealers' lots maybe ever. And dealers are running out of cars. There's certain cars like the Kia Telluride that you just can't get. And if you can get it, you have to pay a premium. So much so that you might even look at, instead of buying the high-end Kia, you might look at buying a a starter Mercedes-Benz for the same amount of money. It's a crazy comparison that consumers never faced before. We're also seeing some dealers that are not doing very well. Not only do they not have the inventory, but in some markets, the sales are just not rebounding. The used car market and the subprime market, there are a lot of people who are going to default on their car loans. There are a lot of people who need a car and can't afford it because they haven't had a paycheck in four or five months. The parts of the auto industry that depended on those people, they're having a tough time right now. Now, when you say that there's, you know, low inventory on dealer lots, you know, the economist to me says that ain't great for consumers because a lot of what someone might bank on is the idea that, hey, Chrysler or General Motors is going to build too many Chevy Bolts and they're going to be a premium for those cars. I'm seeing projections for decreased demand by a lot, but that's still a lot more than what the industry is able to supply, as you just said. So help me understand what that means for consumers who are, for the 11 or 12 million or so people who are actually going to be looking for cars in 2020. So the problem with the reduced inventory on car lots right now is really about manufacturing and supply chain. So a lot of the manufacturing assembly plants are just getting back up to speed. We're also having issues with anything that's built outside of North America making its way back into North America because of quarantine rules, because of stoppage on shipping and things like that. So just as we've seen that supply chain break down with toilet paper and flour and yeast, we're also starting to see the ramifications of that with automotive. And so, you know, it's great if the assembly plants are up and running in Georgia and Alabama, but if they can't get the key pieces they need, say that engine that was built in Mexico or a transmission that was built in Germany, they're stalled, they're idle. So that means that there are not cars being delivered. Um, The new cars that are on the lots, they're tending to sell cars that normally might have a longer time on the dealer's lot. Maybe they would stay for 60 days or 45 days and they're selling in under 30. And then we're also seeing cars, as I said before, selling for a premium, um, which is not typical. Typically, all year long, you're going to sell a car for lower than the MSRP. And now we're seeing certain cars going for over MSRP and some, and many of them being sold at the asking price. I can admit it. There's nothing that drives me more nuts than going to a car dealership. Now, you seem to be saying that like a lot of the things that I hate about car shopping are changing finally in the age of COVID. What are those things? Like what's changing? How is this better? The big irony is that the automotive dealer process hasn't changed much in the last 50 years. And if you had asked someone six months ago, what would it take to get dealers to change? The answer probably would have been something like a global pandemic. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, now we have a global <laughs> pandemic and dealers are changing. So as we, we talked a little bit before about the high points and the low points in the market and who's doing well and who's still suffering. And those dealers that invested in digital process, and they probably didn't do it for the reason they're using it now, but they did it because the marketing experts said, you need to text your best customers, you need to put video on YouTube, you need to do these things, right? You need to um, talk with your team over Zoom, things like that. Well, they begrudgingly learn to use some of these tools. And then when the pandemic hit and the only way they could communicate with their customers was over FaceTime or Zoom or text or email or in a chat group or something like that, they were forced to do it. Many dealers realized that they were going to have to do things in an electronic way that they were not going to be able to talk with people face to face. Well, customers love that. And customers, because there's so much more of the power in the customer's hands when you can get an email from three or four different dealers and do some comparing of their offer and the features that are on that car when you have the VIN number and you can look up the VIN number and see what all the details are on that car and then compare the price that the dealer is offering you, you have the power to make an intelligent decision. And previously, those dealers with all those cars sitting on their lots didn't want you to do that because if they could put enough pressure on you, they could get you to buy a car that they've already invested in rather than the car that you really want to buy. So a lot of things are changing right now. And what they're finding is that customers love buying a car this way. They love the process being about the car and not being about spending time in the dealership. And the dealers are learning that this actually makes their job easier because they don't have to spend all that time selling the car. They can actually spend their time in a much more optimized way, knowing what the customer wants, getting that car on their lot, getting the, all the paperwork done so that they're spending a lot less time with the customer. It's basically a sign and drive type of um, process. And it just is easier all around for everyone. What about used car? Is, what, is there any... Uh... Any changes in the used car world? What's the top of line thing that for those of us who don't have cash? On fire right now, on fire. Because of the shortage of new cars, used cars are flying off of lots. And normally used cars stay on a dealer's lot 60 to 90 days. They're selling in something like 38 days right now and at a premium. The average price of a used car six months ago was $14,000. Now it's over $16,000. The good news is if you are if you can find the new car you want and you're trading in your old car, you should be getting top dollar. If you're buying a used car, you're probably going to pay more than you would have six months ago because there are a lot of people who need cars. And the, the pandemic has really encouraged a lot of people to move out of the cities and into the suburbs. And a lot of those people didn't have cars. So there's a big demand on both new and used right now. I've been going to auto shows. I've seen the industry and I haven't seen much change. It feels like since the 90s when it comes to diversity or women in the industry. Now, you know, it's the era of Black Lives Matter. There are tons of black folks in the auto industry, but they don't 
necessarily rise to the top, right? And the same thing with women in the industry. Where do you see the the place of diversity in the auto industry right now? So uh, it's better than it's ever been. And right now, there are more women in top leadership roles at car companies than ever. And I think it's a a bit of a surprise, actually. There's more women in the C-suite, I think, at GM than there are men. Joy Filatico, the president of Lincoln and chief marketing officer of Ford. Um, She holds two very senior roles in that company. Um, There are women who lead the chief marketing officer role at six or eight car companies. Um, It's a, a pretty big deal. And there are continually more and more women are taking those roles all the time. Um, In fact, Hyundai just added a new chief marketing officer and a chief communications officer who are both female. So two additions to the C-suite in the last year have been women. Um, The secret to this and that will, where things will change, really that pivot point, is when we have chief executives, whether they're male or female, putting development plans in place within their organization to allow women to achieve that highest role, the C-suite role. If you don't have a path in place for people to to get to that pl- to that role, it will never happen. So it's really easy to have them in the middle management, but it's harder to have them at higher management. But we are seeing that start to happen. Two companies that are really good at that, and you can literally start on the line with nothing but a high school education and get into senior level management as a woman, as a person of color, as any sort of minority group, General Motors and Toyota. Toyota has long been the most diverse automaker in the United States, and General Motors has, over the last about 30 years, made diversity an effort, and it's something that is addressed in HR helping people to gain the skills that they need to have the career trajectory that they want. That seems like a good segue to like think about the future of the auto industry, which is mobility. The car industry is like $2 trillion, but the mobility industry is $8 trillion, which is mass transit, scooters, electric bikes, all the ways that we can get around autonomous vehicles, helicopters flying from Santa Monica to downtown uh, Los Angeles, that all of that is a part of mobility. Which of the companies do you think is the furthest along towards becoming a true mobility company? I would say Hyundai would be at the top of my list, a little bit of a surprise. Hyundai is very technology focused. And right now you might see Hyundai as having a lot of great in-car technology that connects your phone and connects to Alexa and things like that. They're working on some great autonomous technology. They even have, remember, Smart Park, where you can just press the button on the key fob and move the car in or out of a parking spot. And then they're also focused on alternative fuel types, especially in Europe and Asia. So there are a lot of places where in five years, you're not going to be able to drive a gas car into the city limits. And Hyundai is, has been working on this for a number of years, recognizing the minute that the, all this legislation passed in Europe, they started working on alternative fuel systems. Ford, six or eight years ago, declared themselves as a mobility company. They made a lot of investments in Silicon Valley, and they have done a lot of testing with things like scooters and electric bikes and 
um, what they call last mile mobility solutions, and then General Motors as well. They've all been um, experimenting with shared van services, autonomous driving services, things like that. Um, they're also thinking about how they deliver not just people, but also packages, also um, how you uh, decrease congestion in cities with like big trucks that are parked on the street to deliver an envelope <laughs> and how we change that um, so that we maybe have an electric bike in that big truck and it sits somewhere not congesting the traffic, but um, that the delivery person can then efficient, efficiently deliver small packages or medium-sized packages, things like that. But truly, every car company is thinking about this. The pandemic is going to disrupt that, I think, to a great degree because it will be a while before people are confident that they can get back on a train, that they can ride the commuter rails, the subways and things like that. Um, if they can work at home and they have their car for where they, when they need to go into the city, um, if they have their car for picking up those groceries at the curbside pickup area, they're less likely to think about taking an Uber, taking a train. You know, I've covered the auto industry for a while. You keep hearing about the oncoming autonomous vehicle. Does this pandemic, which is global and the slowed sales and cut back, do you think that'll affect when we'll see the rollout of driverless cars, cars that drive themselves? I don't think so. I think we're going to see autonomous cars and trucks, especially trucks, as soon, if not sooner, because of the pandemic. So think about um, the supply chain and delivery and the issues that we've had and the things that we've seen disappearing from our store shelves. If we have autonomous uh, delivery trucks and think about the 18 wheelers that are um, driven by a driver, if those are autonomous, we can really smooth out a lot of the problems in our supply chain for consumer products as well as industrial and business to business products. Take New York City, for example, there's what something like 15 million people that live in the metro. And so many of those people would take the train into the city. Now they don't want to. So now they're going to be sitting in a traffic jam because they're going to drive in. And it may be a drive that would normally take an hour, might take two. Well, if the car does all the work, that's two hours. They can make calls. They can do a video chat. They can, you know, do get their work done, get in for their meeting, get out for their meeting and get out of the city and not spend all day actually driving, the car does the driving for them. So I think the pandemic actually um, makes the case for autonomous vehicles even stronger. Scotty Reese is the editor of A Girl's Guide to Cars. It's one of my favorite websites. You can check it out. There's all kinds of articles about any number of things from how to buy a car to how to get ahead in the car industry to stories about the history of the car world. Essentially, everything you need to know. Thank you for joining us on The Gist. Thank you. And now, the spiel. Now, I've been friends with Mike Pesca a long time, and I'm going to tell you, only someone like him gets a show where almost half of it is where he gets to rant about anything he wants. I'm not usually afforded that luxury, but I will try my darndest. Now, it is hard to separate race from, say, the car industry or cars and traffic or just about anything. Now, I've spent a lot of my life in and around the car industry. My grandfather and my great uncle Bob 
both worked at General Motors. My mother was a manager at Ford Motor Company, and my cousin Eric works on the assembly line at Chrysler. I've covered the auto industry and economics at NPR for many years, and now I host the podcast Bring Back Bronco, available where you listen to podcasts. I've also been stopped dozens of times during my career by police officers. One of the perks of being in the car world is driving new cars. One of the dangers of being a black car reporter is testing fancy cars that you don't own. Now, here's something you think of if you're a black man driving, uh, say, a Land Rover that doesn't belong to you through Bel Air. Race, cars, and traffic. Yes, traffic. As much as this is Mike Pesca's show, it's also a very New York show, as I've heard. And I've learned when New Yorkers hear Angelinos talk about traffic, this is actually what they hear. Get back on San Vicente, take it to the 10, then switch over to the 405 North and let it dump you out into Mulholland where you belong. At this time of day, it's going to be jammed. Are you crazy? Just get on the 10 and get out of here. When I talk to my New York friends or East Coast friends, their view of Los Angeles is just one big traffic jam. You know, the second largest city in America where industry in Hollywood is, all they think of, traffic jam. Now, does anyone ever wonder why there is actually so much traffic in Los Angeles? I mean, really wonder. For most poor smucks, the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit is all they know about LA traffic, if they know anything at all. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon this plan of the city councils, a construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. Freeway? What the hell's a freeway? Eight lanes of shimmering cement running from here to Pasadena. Smooth, safe, fast. Traffic jams will be a thing of the past. The idea goes that during the 30s, the big car companies conspired to get rid of the trolleys in order to make way for cars, for the beloved freeway. Now, to be clear, back in the day, the car companies were huge, all-powerful, and, to be honest, pretty damn evil. I mean, the least you can say about Henry Ford is that he was a son of a bitch. That is the very least you can say. Christopher Lloyd, who you heard there, along with Dabney Coleman, by the way, are the two most underrated actors of the 80s. And we'll hear more about Dabney Coleman tomorrow. Now, when you land at LAX and it takes you an hour to get to Santa Monica, it's easy to believe that the car companies formed an evil cabal to make Los Angeles free from public transportation. Sadly, it is not the car companies that did it. Think about it. Los Angeles went through a population explosion from 11,000 people in 1880 to nearly 3 million in 1980. In that period, oil was found three times, movies came, the defense industry came, and so did a lot of money. And you know what else came to Los Angeles at various points in that 100-year history? Asians and blacks. The Latinos were already here. As L.A. grew, the trolley system created amazing thoroughfares like Wilshire Boulevard that for many years accommodated trolleys, horses, and cars traveling all down the same road. Angelinos, though, had a choice between riding in trolleys with their fellow man or being alone in the quiet racial hegemony that is your own car. Can you guess which one Los Angeles residents chose? And to be clear, Angelinos have always had a choice. 
In the 20s, there was a ballot measure in Los Angeles. The choice for voters was whether to construct a vast network of elevated trains, you know, they called them an L, or to build Union Station in downtown that would have consolidated two existing train lines. Back in the 20s and 30s, it was a long time before dog whistles. So the racism was just right out there in the open. The Los Angeles Times editorial page was firmly against an elevated train system. They literally said that L trains would block out the sun. Boy, we could use some shade these days. But if you look at the rhetoric, it's all about race. One of the new station proposals to the LA Times was that Union Station would forever do away with Chinatown and its environs. Oof. Now, before the Chicagoans or New Yorkers jump on their high horses about how forward-thinking their cities are, give me a break. Sadly, Los Angeles didn't have a Tammany Hall or a Chicago political machine to ram through huge government expenditures over a largely illiterate populace. So, if you're asking yourself why Los Angeles traffic is so bad, even during a pandemic... Well, you needn't blame Roger or Jessica Rabbit. You need to blame something as American as apple pie, cars, and cartoons. The economist William Spriggs wrote an open letter to his fellow economists. Spriggs works at Howard University. Now, he essentially says, we turn ourselves inside out to avoid seeing race as a factor, especially in economics. He writes, To far too many African-American economists, it looks like economists are desperate for a great white hope, some variable that can be used to once and for all justify racial disparities. Now, instead of avoiding race, I say, look for it. It's everywhere. It affects us all. Now, yes, as a black man who drives too fast too often, I'm way more likely to be stopped than the average white guy. But if you're stuck in traffic on the Long Island Expressway or the Beltway in D.C., or the dreaded 405, and you're wondering why that is? Well, blame Robert Moses or Richard Daly or any number of these builders. I would add what I call the Sonari Glenton corollary to the work of economists like William Spriggs, William Rogers, or Janelle Jones. When a system in front of you makes absolutely no sense and you can't understand it, say how L.A. with its expensive real estate and natural resources only is now building a world-class transit system. When an economic policy makes no sense and it can't be explained in any other reasonable way, the answer, my friends, is not blowing in the wind. It's just plain old everyday racism. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Margaret Kelly. This has been the blackest version of The Gist that you've heard, I don't know, ever. And guess what, guys? Tomorrow, it gets even gayer. I'm Sonari Glinton. Follow me on Twitter, at Sonari. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thank you for listening. <laughs>